Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. No rest as the air blitz on German aircraft production continues. Up and at them again today. Briefed on the target of Regensburg, Germany, the number one ME-109 airplane plant. The weather today was clear and the bombing was visual. I believe we did a good job on this target. The flat was scattered and only accurate at one point. Sweated it out a little, but we came out unscathed. That, of course, was Sergeant Larry Goldstein. <laughs> I knew everyone knew that. Yeah. Radio <laughs> operator on on Worry Wart of the 563rd Bomb Squadron, the 388th Bomb Group. And that was his diary for the 25th of February, 1944, which was his number 23 mission. So only two to go. And no, I'm going to do a spoiler alert. Um, I got to know Larry and a lovely fellow he was too. Oh, phew. Yeah, so he made it through. He got he got his 25. So well, that's a relief, isn't it? So this is our welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk of our fourth part of our look deep, 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 deep um, dive into the 8th Air Force, US 8th Air Force. And we've we've charted the progress of the bomber campaign up to the uh, turning point of 1943-44, the winter of 43, at which morale is at rock bottom in uh, the mighty 8th. In the 8th Bomber Command. In 8th Bomber Command, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> sky well, high exactly. in Fighter Command. Well, exactly, exactly. They're happy um, as Larry. Exactly. They're, they're certainly buoyant. Um, and the moment is approaching. Because of Overlord, because of this deadline of May the 1st, and I know I know all of you are knowledgeable listeners, so you know perfectly well that May the 1st, it doesn't happen on May the 1st, Overlord, but this is the date they're all working to. Air superiority over the beachhead over Northwest Europe, essentially, is required. It's a, a point-blank requirement for a successful in, invasion of Europe. And Operation Point Blank is, of course, Pap Arnold's plan to use assaults on the German fighter production industrial complex, as it were, the German military industrial complex centered around its fighter production as the point of sort of pressure to apply to the Germans to bring them to battle. But so far, that's not been working out because there's no way of protecting the bombers. The envisaged bombers sort of self-protection scheme of flying in groups and having tons of machine guns isn't delivering a result of defeating the Luftwaffe. Not without fighters to kind of protect them. Not without fighters. So in our last episode, we started looking at the fighter component 
of uh, 8th Air Force, because it's an 8th Air Force. This is the thing to remember. It's not just the bombers. It is actually, it, rather in the style of a German Luftflotte, it's got everything in it, um, in the way that the Royal Air Force has everything in it, but has its separate commands who try to try their best to avoid one another at parties. What we have here is <laughs> an actual air force. So there are fighters at Hap Arnold's disposal. They have arrived at the point technologically with a drop tank and a Mustang with a Merlin 61 where they can get them to Berlin. So all we have to do now is say abracadabra with this uh, collection of magical ingredients and something is going to come up. But not if you're Hap Arnold, as it turns out. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit more to it than that, isn't there? There's a bit more going on. There is a, there is a sense that, that somehow the leadership of the 8th is not quite delivering. It's a bit harsh because the, the weather has been terrible, particularly in November and into December. I mean, you know, it's a complete, not a total washout, but a, largely a washout. But there is a sense that, that there needs to be a kind of new injection of energy and, and purpose, I think. Do you know what that was? That was like sort of... You're in the middle of a BBC drama, aren't you? And you're on episode five and you're getting the full recap. Yeah. There's no skip recap button on this podcast, by the way. Just want to let, <laughs> just want to let you know. Um, so, so it's interesting, isn't it? Because, because a, a survey carried out by the 8th Air Force shows that fighter pilots were generally younger than bomber pilots, much more likely to sign for another combat tour, and nearly all admitted that if they were asked to join the Air Force again, they would choose to become a fighter pilot again. Fighter pilots are more likely than bomber pilots to report that they are in good physical condition. So, in other words, this is sort of reinforcing what you've just said, that fighter pilots in 8th Fighter Command are top of the morning to everything. Um, they're absolutely gung-ho, itching to get their asses inside a Mustang and just want to have a crack at the hunt. Bomber pilots are fed up and disgruntled. I mean, the fighter pilots aren't doing the equivalent of flying to Regensburg. The truth be known. And yeah. having that experience, because, because the, odds, the odds aren't stacked against them in that way at all. And they're simply not having anything like the casualties, because... Yeah, that's, that's my point, yeah. They're, they're not suffering for the kind of vulnerabilities that bom bomber crews have. Also, if you're a bomber pilot, you're responsible for your crew, aren't you? You're worrying about the nine other guys. You're worrying about flying in your formation. You're flying a big and complex machine. If you're a fighter pilot, you're not worrying about any of those things you see the other three guys in your finger four maybe but that's the extent of your 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 responsibilities isn't it well your extent of your responsibilities is working out he's on the rotor yeah you're not thinking i haven't heard from bob the tail gunner for 10 minutes i wonder if his oxygen's off and if, he, if he's dead and those kind of concern you no know, those kind of responsibilities that a bomber pilot's carrying with him as captain of his ship and you know also if you're a fighter pilot there's no point at which you hand over control of the aircraft and autopilot to fly straight and level over a target being shot at by <laughs> German flak. God, just don't. I mean, absolutely. And the other thing, of course, is is that, that what we heard in that. Uh, for those who listened to the last episode, it was a it was a fantastically poignant entry from the the chaplain at the three hundred eighty first bomb group, a chap called James Good Brown, who was saying that you know there isn't any camaraderie anymore because because all the originals have gone and the new guys that come in are all strangers because no one wants to make friends with them anymore because they're probably going to be dead tomorrow. And so it's a kind of, you know, it's a protective me mechanism. You don't have any of that problem in full fighter group, you know, because every night they're going out on the piss. Every day they're going up in their kites and having a brilliant time. They know that the following morning, Bob's still going to be in his bed, you know. And so the bonds of, of friendship and togetherness and a sense of, you know, we're top dogs, that kind of superiority feeling that you get if you're kind of top of the sports table, all that is there uh, and completely absent in, in Bomber Command. 
And, and it's very clear to Hap Arnold, who is the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Army Air Force back in Washington, as New Year dawns, that Point Blank is at least three months behind. And that's a problem because May is when Operation Overlord, the cross-channel invasion, is supposed to take place. And it's also clear that in the autumn, in the fall of 1943, he's, he's already starting to think, hmm, we need to shift this a little bit. You know, it's not quite working out with Ira Aker at the top. And this is difficult. This is These are tough decisions because Ira Aker is one of his old mates that kind of wrote books together. This is it. I think in the first episode, we talked quite a lot about this. That there are a tiny cadre of people who've, who've made this all happen. This tiny American Army Air Corps and then Army Air Force think tank, essentially, that has delivered, delivered this situation, been given a big blank check at one point, uh, much to satisfaction. They're all intellectually in bed with each other and have not conspired, is, is, is the right word, conspired to create the bomber force over the years together and fought long, hard battles against conventional thinking and all that sort of stuff. So to fire Acre is... Um, it's a big deal. But Arnold thinks he, he's, he's lacking flexibility. He feels he's not been concentrating on priority targets enough. And he feels that the training, technique, tactics, operational efficiency all need improving. And, and this isn't entirely fair. But the bottom line is, is Arnold has lost confidence in Acre as commander-in-chief. And once, once that happens, you've, you've crossed a Rubicon. But they sound like man looking for reason to fire someone reasons rather than of course he's been not concentrating on targets all the targets you know you, those like sound like fig leaves to be honest but but and this this is where he is absolutely right Acre doesn't really understand how you use fighters mm. because one of the things that Acre is doing has been doing is when he does send escorts over they're close escorts and for those who are students of the battle of britain will remember that when goering changed his tactics and ordered the the 109s the Messerschmitt 109 fighter planes to close escort the bombers, there was absolutely uproar from Galland and co. Because the whole point about a fighter plane is it's supposed to go fast and it's supposed to be aggressive. And if you're close escorting bombers, you have to do one of two things. You have to do you have to weave around them back and forth. You're looking over forth. your shoulder the entire time. You're looking over your whole shoulder. You, you, your whole mindset is defensive because you're trying to protect someone and you're not operating at your advantage, which is speed and using speed and height. So it's a really, really bad idea. You can understand why someone would say, we've got to protect them, but that is not how you protect You protect them by being incredibly aggressive and going ahead and shooting down the fighters before they get there. That's how you do it. And so from that point of view, I think he's right. And I, I think it's the right decision to get rid of Acre. It, it is really tough. Acre is a visionary. He, he's, he's outlined the strategy for the 8th Air Force, which not its, its execution, but in its, in its principles is absolutely correct. You cannot argue with point blank as a, as a strategy, particularly when your main number one priority for the Allies in the war against Nazi Germany is to do the cross-channel invasion. And he's absolutely right that clearing the airspace over Northwest Europe is absolutely, rightly a prerequisite of the invasion. But they absolutely need more P-51s coming in, and, and they're on their way. But but it's it's not just the long-range fighters. It's a change of attitude, a change of mindset, and a change of approach and change of tactics. And you need a, the new broom needs to be someone who is an undeniable personality that can come in and it can't be Hayward Hansel or someone like that. You can't get some, you can't get some wonk in, is the point. You need a, no, you, need, you a, need to get someone who is bona fide at absolutely top draw. And actually what he does is he gets two people in. Yeah. People whose reputations are completely undeniable is the thing that has to happen here. Absolutely. And I think it's th I think this is a really, really smart move because what he does is what he what, what Arnold does is he 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 talks to um with spots, he talks to the British chiefs 
about having a unified strategic air force commander for Europe. And the British are not having any of that. So Arnold goes, <laughs> okay, fine, whatever. I'll, I'll have my own one then for, for, for just the for American forces. So there is a unifying European strategic air forces commander who's going to be based in London, but will o- also oversee strategic air operations from Italy as well. And that's going to be Spots. So Spots moves from the Mediterranean over to there. Acre is bumped upstairs to command all Mediterranean air forces in the in the in the Mediterranean, which which the Brits are very happy with, uh, and which I think is a good position for him. And the new commander of the Eighth Air Force is none other than Jimmy Doolittle, and Jimmy Doolittle is quite simply one of the most famous men in the United States, let alone the USA. His CV is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you know, even if the war hadn't come and the, you know, the Army Air Corps had never required his services, the Army Air Force had never required his services. He'd still be talked about, wouldn't he? He'd still be talked about in, in, in terms of aviation. You know, the first ever transcontinental um, in September of 1922. So, so tons of first ever. So he's a he's an actual complete bona fide air pioneer. And he gets, you know, he gets a distinguished flying cross for that because obviously everyone knows how, how difficult that is. Um, he's really interested in the technical side of um, aviation. I mean, he, I mean, I think it's very interesting. A lot of these people, they complete masters and then doctorates in aeronautics. But it's really interesting because these are PhDs that are being, in, you know, this isn't like doing it now when avionic aeronautics is a hundred year old discipline. This is a guy completely inventing it, inventing, you know, going to university, creating and inventing the science, building blocks of aviation. He's one of those people. He's one of the, he's, He's as important as anyone in the 20s in, t- in terms of aviation and has a public reputation for that, you know, as a test pilot, high-speed pioneer. He wins the Schneider Trophy. And, of course, British listeners, Spit- Spitfire fans will-, will be able to tell you what the Schneider Trophy is. You know, he's just amazing, you know. He's obsessed with speed as well. And he's obsessed with speed. And, and his PhD, his doctorate, is about his own experiments of aeronautical acceleration. Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So like I say, he's inventing them. They're inventing it, these people. It's not like me. Do- I mean, it's unlikely that I would do an aeronautics degree. Let's be honest now, but it's not like me doing one now, is it? It's like even the word, even they're coining the language at this point. And he's the first ever man to take off using instruments only um, and land. So he, which, which, let's face it, requires balls of balls, steel. Balls of steel. Um, the artificial horizon, which is a thing um, anyone who's played a fight, flight simulator will know about. Um, or anyone who flies, because I'm sure many of our listeners fly. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, we know your level. <laughs> he helped. He helped develop that. So, so this is a guy who's literally in every cockpit of every aircraft since in the 20s and 30s. He's just he is he is Mister Aviation. Yep. Good friends with Ernst Udet, um, who sort of isn't quite becomes a kind of opposite number when the war comes. And by the time the war comes, he's too old, really, isn't he? He's um, he's not going to fly. Yeah, he's in his 40s. Then the, the war comes, and in April of 1942, he leads the Doolittle Raid from USS Hornet to Tokyo, which is the most... Which, again... Which is a completely insane story. Aircraft brimful of fuel, you know, spilling their <laughs> fuel on the runway of the aircraft, on the flight deck of the aircraft. Bristling with weaponry. Yeah, yeah absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> so, you know, they, they get him out of retirement, you know, one last job. Jimmy, I've got a job for you. It's a tough that's job. That's the thing. That's what's interesting about Doolittle is... is it's a job for you. He's not only is he suited to interwar avionics, he's suited to, to the war. He's, he's good at it. He's a great leader. He's an inspirational leader. He's, and he's got a great big bright, plain brain, hasn't he? Is the 
is the truth. He really has. And the other thing is, he's a really, really good bloke. He's just, he's he's incredibly charming, good fun. You know, this is someone, I mean, got, got it. You know, we have, you occasionally have those sort of, who would you like to have a, a historical dinner with? I've got to say, Jimmy Doolittle would be right up there. I mean, just being able to sit down over dinner and with, over a few beers and talk to Jimmy Doolittle would be amazing. I mean, he's absolutely top guy. And in the Mediterranean, he becomes a 12th Air Force commander and one of those Mediterranean air power pioneers, along with Mary Cunningham, Larry Cuter, Brereton, Spots, all these guys, you know, th- th- this this hub of, of kind of, you know, Pete Casada, all these guys who are kind of sort of pioneers and sort of excited and bouncing off ideas off each other and stuff in a really, really positive way. Anyway, so he, he absolutely ticks the book because he's all about speed and fighters, but he's got He's got a Medal of Honor for for leading the Doolittle uh, Raid. So, yeah, the Doolittle Raid, which is obviously his bombers. So he's he's a complete pa- he's a complete package. Aker is gutted. He says, "I feel like a pitcher who's been sent to the showers during a World Series game." But you know, too bad. But that's because you know you're a middle pace seamer, and what we read need right now is Stuart Broad. He's coming to weave some I mean, magic. Or I mean, he has been he know. has been sent to the showers for the right person. You might. Aker might be thinking, I'm gutted by this, but at least they've got someone who knows what he's doing, I suppose. Yeah. He's not saying, God damn it, you know, why have they got this uh, small timer in to take my place? You, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that by now the 15th Air Force is operational and the Foggia Airfield Complex in Italy, which is on the Adriatic coast, about two thirds away down the, down the leg of Italy. And there are now heavy bombers there. They're building up forces. They've got about um, 15 um, bomb groups there by the end of the year, and gonna, that's going to rise to 21 by the beginning of March. And the idea is that this, this is this is hand-in-glove coordinated efforts. And, and they're going to be able to strike at Romanian oil in Plesti in a way that, that the 8th and 15th have tried before and had an absolutely horrible, torrid time, unsuccessful time, trying to prosecute those raids and we i mean we've not managed to fit those into the into this narrative but but that's you know and again an american attempt to apply bomber you know to, to find a soft point in the german economy attack it and alter the course of the war but the problem is that's a really 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 difficult target if you're flying from england it's a really really difficult target if you're flying from north africa it's 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 bad news it's a little round. bit easier if you're from foggia um, and from foggia you, you can also attack a number of um targets in the southern reich in austria where there's a number of um, assembly Bavaria, yeah. you can yeah. you can attach um vino neustadt regensburg all these places are much closer to foggia than they are from from england so that's all good and on the 27th of december 1943 arnold sends um, a missive out to the commanders of the 8th and the 15th air forces and he says aircraft factories in this country are turning out large numbers of airplanes engines and accessories b our training establishments are operating 24 hours per day, seven days per week, training crews. C, we are now furnishing fully all the aircraft and crews to take care of your attrition. D, it is a conceded fact that Overlord and Anvil, which is the planned southern invasion of France, which is going to happen at this point, at the same time as Overlord, will not be possible unless the German Air Force is destroyed. Absolute rock fact that. I always think it's, bit, you know, because, well, hang on, Jim. I always think it's funny that, you know, Anvil is the hangover name, isn't it? Because it was Sledgehammer and Anvil. They d- and they never update Anvil to go with Overlord, do they? No, and eventually it becomes Dragoon. I know, but it's it's not Underlord or something. It, it, I, always, I always feel it's a missed opportunity yeah. that they don't. Yeah, I do. <laughs> it's a, it's a, yeah. I, I, I generally feel that Anvil is a poor code name. It is a poor code name, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, point E, therefore, my personal message to you this is a must in capital letters is to destroy the enemy air force wherever you find them in the air 
on the ground and in the factories. And actually, that last bit is the bit that Acre has not been doing. He has not been destroying them on the ground. Um, he has not been aggressively pursuing them in the air. And that's that's the difference that Doolittle can bring to this. So on the 29th of December, Tui Spots arrives in London. And I think this is a this is a pivotal moment. It, it, it really is. This is kind of end of the year. Hasn't panned out this fall. Right, new year, 1944, new purpose, new direction, new energy. Let's take it to the enemy. And of course, the further you go into the new year, the further the weather gets better, in theory. But up to this point, and it's worth just stressing this, from the first mission to Rouen on the 17th of August 1942 to the 31st of December 1943, the 8th Air Force has lost 1,013 aircraft and 10,000 aircrew. 10,000 aircrew. A further 1,008 aircraft have been sufficiently damaged to have been drawn from the battle, and a further 5,932 had suffered lesser damage. So that's a, that's a lot. That's a lot of planes. Yep. It's incredible, On the it? other hand, more and more are arriving. So by the yep. end of November, Acre has to, is able to dispatch 633 bombers on a single mission. And by the time that Jimmy Stewart, the film star Jimmy Stewart, flies his first combat mission on the 13th of December, he's one of 710. On so the that's on point that C. We are now furnishing fully all the aircraft and crews to take care of your attrition. Because that's an absolutely critical part. Because during 1943, they'll do, you know, Schweinfurt 2, and the losses are too great. It's unsustainable. It's the simple, the simple message in 43 is all of this effort, it's not sustainable. But we've reached a point where attrition can now be taken care of which is critical if you're going to keep the pressure up on the Luftwaffe. If you're going to do E, you need C, as it were, if you're going to destroy the enemy wherever you find them. Exactly that. And the, and, and the point is, is by now the 8th truly is mighty because it's got 26 bomb groups and 12 fighter groups, uh, which is a, a combination of 4,242 aircraft. And by the middle of February, it's going to have a further 12 bomb groups and a further four fighter groups in place. So... You know, and it is only that graph is only going upwards. I mean, that 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 is a huge number of aircraft. What it also means is you've got a lot of a lot of rookie crews, but what it also means, I think, is that you've got a lot of new bomb groups who are coming in, who don't have the baggage of Black Thursday. They don't have the baggage of Schweinfurt One. The weather conditions are awful, but they also know they're only going to get better. So a lot of the kind of psychological damage, which is is absolutely the heart of. 8th Bomber Command, October, November 1943, is starting to be kind of pushed to one side a little bit. Yeah, there's the contrast between the original intake, who'd all trained together, and then a sort of replacement culture. And what, what you've got now is, because it's wholesale replacement, got a new intake. sheer yeah. numbers, you're back, basically back to square one with the, with the pilots, the hopeful pilots, rather than the jaded ones, and then the man who came for dinner. You know, the, those people. Well, Jim, we've got to go to a break. Uh, when we get back, we'll look more into the psychology of the Bombermen. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply.
Welcome back to our Mighty Eight series. Well, there is that moment, Jim, isn't there, where um, a flyer's posted saying, who's scared of the Focke-Wulf FW190? One of the officers puts a note on it, sign here, and everyone signs it. <laughs> <laughs> so this, so we're, we're way beyond that now. And it's a set, I mean, this is, this is the thing, really. US 8th Air Force is Trigger's broom, isn't it? It's George Washington's axe, isn't it? That it's complete. It's the same Air Force, but it's completely new. And now Doolittle comes in. It's completely new again, isn't it? It's, the, it- it's completely new again, and he immediately makes his his presence felt. So he's absolutely, you know, he 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 is really determined to use his fighters in a way that Acre hasn't. So more drop tanks. That gives P-47s a range of 400 miles in one direction. P-38s 800 miles. P-51s 1500 miles. So that's Thunderbolts, Lightnings and Mustangs for those who... Are, yes, are, are Lightnings being twin-engine fighters. Very, very cool fighters, by the way. There's still only the 354 fighter group, which is equipped with Mustangs, but more are on their way. And, and Don Blakesley at the 4 fighter group is absolutely determined that the 4 fighter group should be equipped with them. And, and they're changing tactics. There are going to be no more close escorts. And, and Doolittle goes, you know, makes the point. He goes, fighter aircraft are designed to go after enemy fighters. Fighter pilots are usually pugnacious individuals by nature and trained to be aggressive in the air. Their machines are specifically designed for offensive action, i.e. not close escorting, which is, which is absolutely specifically defensive. So he discusses his plans with Major General Bill Kepner, who's actually a very cool dude and is the commander-in-chief of 8 Fighter Command. And when he goes in to see Kepner for the first time, he sees a sign on the office wall that says, the first duty of the 8th Air Force fighter is to bring the bombers back alive. And Doolittle immediately tells him to take it down and replace it with this. The first duty of the 8th Air Force fighters is to destroy German fighters. (laughs) You know, and it's just a, it's brilliantly simple and pithy. And Kepner says, you mean you're authorizing me to take the offensive? And Doolittle growls, I'm directing you to. I mean, the thing is, we're four years into the fifth year of the war. Always, I mean, always, 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 always. It's human nature, this, isn't it? It's that sometimes the obvious lessons have to be relearned. Sometimes the clear things need stating. And they've arrived at the point where the the, the obvious lesson has been learned and the clear thing needs stating. But it needs, someone needs, this is like saying there will be no withdrawals in the middle of 1942. That's a really good analogy. Because because this was all played, in the First World War, this was all played out. The pursuit fighters will attack bombers and, and will influence a bomber campaign. In the battle, the Battle of Britain is this great, big, shining example played out in microcosm of how these things can and do work. But it's still, you still need to actually say it out loud and do it because otherwise the inertia of circumstance and the, the inertia of previous decisions will lock you into a, an impossible position. I, I think this, you know, that this has to be said out loud. It's sort of, it's a bittersweet moment, isn't it? Because if they'd said this six months earlier, things may have, may have turned out very, very differently for for these thousands of crews we're talking about. Yes, it's, it's, you know, they're all the right people at the right time in the right moment and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And and, and you know, the bombers are, you know, they're outraged and, and, and Fred Anson, who's the 8th Bomber Command, Commander is is not happy about it, but but Doolittle is not to be swayed whatsoever. And in the minds of both Doolittle and Spots is Operation Argument, which actually has been conceived under Acre's watch back in the beginning of November and signed off at the end of November, which is a a, a single kind of concentrated mass all our effort on the German aircraft industry, very much in the in the in the same manner that had been planned in that that terrible week in October, which culminated in Black Thursday. But actually, terrible weather has prevented it. And frankly, it's just as well because they haven't got the tools to do it and it would have been a complete disaster again. So it's a, it's a huge sigh of relief that it never gets launched. 
But of course, the clock is ticking and the weather is still absolutely dreadful in January. Uh, there's a sort of blanket of snow over most of Europe and, 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 and persistent cloud. And they just don't have that break in the weather to be able to launch this mass attack. But again, that's probably no bad thing in January. But there's a moment, isn't there, where Doolittle's questioned for having the guts for a bomber campaign, isn't there, basically? Yes, 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 yes. Well, we'll come to that in a minute because that's literally just on the eve of big week. Which um, is just incredible, isn't it? Because, yeah, absolutely because, incredible. Well, because we look at, when you look at the weather, you look at the circumstances. Again, the, the, surely by now people know that the weather is really is a real problem. You know, that you are going to have to cancel stuff. You are going to have to postpone things. You, but you just can't quite take Texas and Florida out of the mindsets of these these commanders. It's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, but but there is this moment, there is this little chink of light that happens on the eleventh of January, nineteen forty four, which shows you, which shows Doolittle is right, that shows Acre, uh, that, that that Arnold is right, and that actually the, the strategy, the new tactics, the strategy that they're pursuing is the correct one. It's only a chink, but it's a really important chink, and this is this was what becomes known as thirty against one. And what happens is is the Eighth Air Force are are heading to Brunswick, Halberstadt, and um, Oschersleben. And the 1st Division is heading for officers leaving it. And, and it's a big moment because it's the first time the 8th is being sent into the heart of the Reich with fighter support. Um, not escorts, but fighter support all the way there and there and, uh, and all the way back in various forms. So they're coming in relays. Um, and this includes the 354 fighter group in their P-51B Mustangs. And the first division heads to Oschersleben. It's covered in clouds. So they then go to secondary target, which is Halberstadt, and the Junkers factory there. But even when they get to Halberstadt, it's covered in cloud. And then news comes through that actually there's a break in the ground over Oschersleben. So they go back to Oschersleben. So by the time they've been sort of circling all around North Germany, kind of signaling to the Luftwaffe where they are uh, and making themselves incredibly vulnerable, of course. They do manage to, to, to um, strike Oschersleben. And then on the way back, they're constantly being attacked by, by, by fighters. And back at a fair force at uh, Pine Tree in, in High Wycombe, at uh, Wycombe Abbey, um, Doolittle is following the unfolding drama alongside Spatz, Kepner, and Barney Giles, who's over from the um, over from, from Washington. And those who listened to the earlier episodes may remember that it was Barney Giles who was in charge of getting the long-range Mustang into, into being. And the fighter groups have not kind of arrived when they should, and, and the whole raid was developing into a fiasco, a potentially a massive catastrophe. There's a lot of moving parts. Well, know, exactly. This, this is my point. That you, you know, the fighters have to navigate to wherever the where, where, because they're not flying close escort. This is the point. Because they're not poddling along in formation with the bombers, they aren't. There's a rendezvous question that has to be answered. Exactly. And, you know, if you look on Google Maps for where Oschersleben is, it's next to Magdeburg, so on the way to Leipzig from Hanover. It's sort Hanover, of cent you, central northern it's Germany. It's basically isn't central it? northern Germany, right in the middle of the place. So if you've got a formation of fortresses flying around that part of the world, I mean, what, what else are the Luftwaffe going to do but go, all right, okay, especially as they look like they're dithering and, and, and they're full of indecision. They're a right target. Getting the fighters to arrive on time. It, well, it, it's, it, it's it's more it's the tricky. bombers arriving on time in this instance because yeah. because they've been faffing around going sort of Oschersleben, Halberstadt, Halberstadt, Oschersleben. That's held them up. The P-51s have then been kind of using up fuel pointlessly kind of circling around. But but anyway, to cut a long story short, they, they do join up. They do link up. And as they spot the bombers, they, they're literally just starting to deploy the, the, the Mustangs to kind of, you know, above the above the bombers when suddenly one of the pilots says my god there are germans coming up in droves beneath these bombers and 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 suddenly there they are this this huge formation of of fighter planes a mixture force of, of 109s and and 110s and ju88s all coming up towards the bombers but the crucial point is they're coming up 
and the and the Mustangs are above them, so they down. dive down, go down and get the bastards. Calls out uh, Major Jim Howard. And Major Jim Howard is only a squadron commander, but he is commanding the 354th on that particular mission. And the Mustangs very quickly take a big toll because these hugely skillful pilots against these very you know predominantly unskillful Luftwaffe pilots, and and they kind of they make a, a meal of it. But inevitably, what happens is these melees take you know disappear off, and and suddenly the the Mustangs are off chasing the, the Messerschmitts and the Junkers and what have you, which at that point is then leading the bomber formation slightly kind of underdefended. And Jim Howard yeah. is very, yeah, naked, exactly. And Jim Howard is, however, having shot down three planes already, suddenly realizes that the bombers are on their own. And so for more than half an hour, he stays with the fortresses. And any time a, a plane sort of tries to attack them, he beetles after them and drives them off. It's a bit like a destroyer going after a, a, a U-boat in the Atlantic and making it dive. It's the same kind of effect. And thirty, there's him against thirty attacks by Messerschmitts, Junkers, and and uh, of fighters of varying kinds, and not a single bomber is shot down. You know, he 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 successfully his one lone P fifty one B Mustang makes the case for for aggressive fighter escorts. It's the it's makes the case, the case absolutely, but <laughs> makes the case for the kind of brilliance of the P fifty one. And in that whole, he is an ace in a day on that that particular thing. He shoots down six aircraft, confirmed enemy aircraft on that one mission. Anyway, Jim has an amazing guy. He's kind of a tall bloke. He's had lots of experience. He has flown with Cheno over in the uh, in the Flying Tigers over in China. He's kind of quite worldly wise, but he's very laconic. He doesn't say an awful lot. He's a man of few words. He's kind of sort of Clint Eastwood and a fistful of dollars, that kind of figure, and without the poncho. And yeah. he gets back, <laughs> fills in the form, talks to – just imagine if he did. Well, I just imagine the poncho in the cockpit of a P-51. <laughs> Smoking a cheroot would be very cool, wouldn't yeah. it? Uh, but anyway, he, 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 um, he, re- he reports his claims. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't really expand on what's happened. But what happens is over the, the, the kind of next 48 hours, lots of reports from the bomber crews comes in going, God, there was this one Mustang. It was absolutely amazing. And, you know, he drove off all these things. And I wouldn't be standing here today if it wasn't for that one lone Mustang. And, of course, what the eighth needs right now is a PR story. And he's a really, really good one. And they just see it. It's just sitting there right in front of them. So they, they, they go, well, who the hell is this amazing fighter pilot? Turns out it's Howard. They haul him off to a press conference in London, give him an instant Medal of Honor, Congressional Medal of Honor, which frankly he deserves, I think. And um, and he says, I've seen my duty and I've done it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he's a sort of PR person's nightmare because because he just yes. doesn't really speak. And they sort of go, yeah. well, how was it? Yeah, <laughs> fine. So one word answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it's really funny. Really, really <laughs> funny. And he's just taking the piss. I mean, you know, he, he, he knows he's he, – I mean, that is a very – He's not trying to come across as a, some kind of sort of, you know, southern hick. He's, he, he's, yeah. he's just doing it deliberately to wind everybody up. It's very, very funny. <laughs> um, but anyway, he, he, so he gets a, gets a Medal of Honor. And, and this, is, this is a big, a big moment. It, 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 it's a big moment. Well, so he is personal proof of concept of the Mustang. Roll the Mustangs out to the fighter groups. And, and the all you need all you need is a gap mm. in the weather. Eighth fighter group, it's their first and it's their only Congressional Medal of Honor is, the, is, is what it comes down to. It's an amazing thing. But the sim, it's symbolic of the fact they have the aircraft, they have the pilots with the mentality. And the Mustang is going is the key to unlock the door here. Fourth fighter group are next in line for Mustangs. So Blakesley's in going, General, give me those Mustangs. I give you my word. I'll have them in combat in 24 hours. I promise 24 hours. I mean, 
quite clearly, there's a man who's confident of his powers and of his men's ability. Well, to be fair, most a lot of his guys have flown Spitfires, and yeah, yeah. You, you know, you know, Blakesley is 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 a man of deep, deep focus. As you know, you would never associate the word faffing with Don Blakesley. So obviously, the, they're going to ride these Mustangs, and he's just going to get them up straight away. And he does. He's he's absolutely as good as his word, and they're absolutely fine. And and it's interesting because by the middle of February, um, eight fighter command could mount hundred long range Mustangs. It's pretty good. That's two fighter groups and nearly seven hundred fighters of all kinds. And it's really interesting because when I was when I was doing a, my work on Big Week, I went over to the Maxwell Air Force Research Center in which is at Maxwell, Alabama, which is the, the kind of sort of one of the main fighter bases in the US. And that's where they have all their archives. They have amazing, amazing material there. Uh, and one of the things I came across was a, was a series of pamphlets written by. So what they'd done is that they had asked all the leading aces and leading pilots of all the various fighter groups in the Eighth Air Force to write down their thoughts on tactics. You know how you you know and if you're a fighter pilot, what what should you know? And they're so interesting because they've got they've got Blakesley in there, they've got B Beeson, they've got Kid Hofer, they've got Hub Zemka, they've got yeah yeah you know all all the people you would expect, and it's and it's really interesting and. You know, there's some things like, you know, when flying over enemy territory, always fly as fast as you can. This makes it easier for you to bounce Huns and harder for the Huns to bounce you. That's from B. Beeson, actually. Um, uh, another small but useful point is to cover the sun occasionally when turning or weaving and have a look around towards it. I mean, I did, you know, it's so obvious, isn't it? But you're probably not taught that when you're flying over Florida in, your, in flying training. And then... The Hub Zemka one is, and actually, I did wonder whether you might um, actually read out the whole, read the whole, record the whole thing, and put it on Patreon because it's, it's yeah, why not? It, it's three pages of utter joy. But Zemka says, "Never let a Jerry get his sights on you, no matter whether he's a hundred yards or a thousand yards away." And Walker um, Mahurin, also of the fifty-six fighter group, goes, "I think that my group possibly does more training than any other in the ETO." At least it seems that way to me. I've been doing training ever since I got to the group, and I imagine I'll continue to do so till the war is over. It really pays. Every worthwhile hour in the air is the most valuable thing that I know of. And what I love about that quote is it shows you that there is absolutely no complacency here whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, these guys are absolutely humming. You know, the RAF is by the same, by this stage is, is in a very similar shape. It's also getting pilots with a similar number of hours in their logbooks and all the rest of it. But, you know, these are guys who are just the, the spring that is waiting to be released, isn't it? And you compare that with the morale of their opposite numbers in the Luftwaffe. Oh, desperate. Who, who are in a desperate situation, who are always, you know, the Luftwaffe's robbing P Peter to pay Paul constantly. That You know, if, the, if there's an emergency here, they all get, they all, fly off to where the emergency is, they try and deal with that, then they're back without the hours with aircraft that are increasingly questionable qualities they're being built as well. That's the other thing. It's one of the problems that Luftwaffe have, isn't it? It's that they're speeding, they're speeding up production and production isn't necessarily meeting all the, those high standards of German engineering that people uh, go on about. So there's a, there is an increasing gap in what these two fighter forces are capable of. And I think that it comes at the moment where the Americans need that to be happening is one of the happy confluences of the war, isn't it? Is the, is the truth. And just as just as there's that gap forming, all they need all they need is a gap in the weather, which is what we'll be coming to in our next episode as we take you to big week, big week, <laughs> big week. Fantastic! But I love that Jim Howard story, though. 
30 for one is, is such a good story. Such it, a good story. It's incredible. And I seen my duty and I done and it. I done it. <laughs> <laughs> he's an amazing guy um, Jim had absolutely amazing yeah. okay well thanks everyone for listening we will see you next time for when it all kicks the next off next episode and big week <laughs>